We're in the middle, actually we're closer to the beginning, but we're in a, a series called Carrying the Kingdom. Downstairs, the kids are doing a series called Kids Carrying the Kingdom, and up here we're doing Carrying the Kingdom, where we address some of the exact same themes they're handling downstairs, but with a different spin on it. And last week, they were dealing with who God is as a father, and we were dealing with learning to live as Abba's child. And this week, they're talking about God's love reaching through our sin to lay hold of us in love, and that is exactly what we're going to be talking about up here as well. So if you have your Bible and you could turn to Romans chapter 5, we will begin there. Romans chapter 5, listen to the word of the Lord. Therefore, since we've been made right in God's sight by faith, we have peace with God because of what Jesus Christ our Lord has done for us. Because of our faith, Christ has brought us into this place of undeserved privilege where we now stand and we confidently and joyfully look forward to sharing God's glory. We can rejoice too when we run into problems and trials for we know that they help us develop endurance and endurance develops strength of character and character strengthens our confident hope of salvation. And this hope will not lead to disappointment, for we know how dearly God loves us because he has given us the Holy Spirit to fill our hearts with his love. When we were utterly helpless, Christ came at just the right time and died for us sinners. Now, most people would not be willing to die for an upright person, though someone might perhaps be willing to die for a person who is especially good. But God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. And since we've been made right in God's sight by the blood of Christ, he will certainly save us from God's condemnation. For since our friendship with God was restored by the death of his son while we were still his enemies, we will certainly be saved through the life of his son. So now we can rejoice in our wonderful new relationship with God because of our Lord Jesus because our Lord Jesus Christ has made us friends of God. This is the word of the Lord. Verse 2. Christ has brought us into this place of undeserved privilege. Or maybe your translation says, into this grace in which we stand. You're in a state of grace if you're in Christ. It's an ongoing condition. It's a place in which you live your life and from which you live your life. You didn't earn it, you don't deserve it, and you don't start to earn it now, and you don't start to deserve it now. You live under the smile of the Father. Because you simply said your yes to Jesus' offer of forgiveness and everything else along with it. It says at just the right time while we were still sinners, 
That's when Jesus died for us. It's, at, it's when we're at our lowest point. It's when we're at our worst. It's when we're are most hardened in sin. It's when we're the most resistant to the Lord. It's when we're acting the ugliest we could act that Jesus said, mine, I choose you. In the ancient world, when you would make a covenant with someone, oftentimes you would kill animals and you would take the pieces and you would separate them and the people making the covenant would both walk in between the animal parts to signify that if I don't keep up my end, my terms of the covenant, may I become like these animals. And in the cross of Jesus, God is taking on himself the consequences of our breaking the covenant with him. Instead of him just doing his side of the covenant, he's also coming alongside us, sending Jesus to become one of us so that he can not just, not just sort of forgive us, but he can enter fully into our situation, completely experience everything we're experiencing, be one of us, and then take all the covenant breaking, all the brokenness, all the hard-heartedness, all the enmity, all the being dead to God and alive to sin, and he can take it into himself and by death destroy death and rise and bestow on us the consequences of his faithfulness. It's the shock of the gospel. It's just the right time, says Paul. It's not while we were seeking imperfectly to please God, he made up the remainder and said, you know, they have good hearts. That would have been the wrong time. That would have been at just the wrong time. Because it would have obscured who he is and it would have obscured the foundation of our relationship to God. If he comes to complete 98% and turn it into 100, then we think that 98% of this salvation is us. Shoot, if he, if he comes to complete 98% and we offer 2%, we, get, we become rooted in earning and performing, and we don't see this thing clearly. The gospel, the whole gospel, is designed to cut the legs out from human self-dependence, from human independence, and from human boasting. It is designed to cut the legs out from all these reference points to place us squarely and helplessly in this place of radical dependence on God, not us. That all sounds just so basic, doesn't it? But he loves us at his, he, he loves us to the uttermost while we're at our worst. And I don't know if you experience this yet, but it's, it's those times when you're at your worst, when you're at your ugliest, when you're at your hardest, that love will break you down and get past all of your defenses and begin to, for the, maybe for the first time, really see him as he is. It's not when you're doing well and he's blessing you. It's the contrast, it's the bold relief of his goodness meets my, I guess we'll just use the word sin. And if we can get grounded in this thing, instead of thinking that, you know, I used to be a sinner, but now I'm a saint, so now that I'm a saint, you know, even though I didn't deserve it then, there's, I have a lot of good days now where, I, you know, I can see why he loves me. I'm a pretty cool dude. No, it's, it's having started, it was just the right time when we were his enemies because 
this, this, this heart of, of perfect love to imperfect people that he started with is not something that changes. I mean, show of hands here who didn't get anything wrong this week. No one's dumb enough to raise their hand. Um, James says we stumble at many points, all of us. Yeah, we're, we're justified, we're, we're counted as righteous, God relates to us, he accepts us completely, but we're in a process of being made holy, aren't we? And who's making us holy? Well, it's not us. And so the love that reaches out and initially grabs us out of the, out of the sewer of our sin is the exact same heart of love that continues to bear with us mercifully and kindly, yet with 100% full-hearted affection this day. This day that you don't deserve it. This moment that you still don't deserve it. This very moment that you still don't deserve it and still don't earn it. And when we lose track of that, when we lose sight of that, I'll tell you two things that happen very, very quickly. We lose our worship and we lose our mercy to people. Amen. When we get, last week we talked about the, son, the two sons, right? And I talked about the older brother was rooted in earning and because he was rooted in earning, he, he had a cluster of associated beliefs, associated behaviors, associated attitudes that came along with earning. Do you, anyone remember what they were? Comparing judging and resenting. And he didn't just compare himself to his little brother and resent and judge. Because he was oriented toward earning, he was even judging his father. Relating to God out of anything other than a deep awareness of undeserved favor, that I am in a state of grace, that I live and breathe and move in a state where God's not relating to me according to my works. He's not relating to me according to how I measure up right now. And if he did, that would be disastrous. Like this deep awareness of the undeserved, full-hearted affection God has for me every moment that he's not pulling back, that creates worship. That creates a clear vision of who he is. But the moment I step into earning the moment he becomes obscured in my eyes, and I begin, instead of savoring the worth of his goodness and his beauty, I begin to seek to live to prove my worth. And I, became, I become fixated on proving my worth and measuring up. And then if anything goes wrong in my life, I have a heart set to become resentful and bitter and blame. And this heart, this heart of grace, this, this heart that, that's captured and, and, and just shocked that he would love me the way he loves me, that he would keep me, that he would fill me with his goodness, that he would make himself so available, that he would continuously equip and shape and train me, that he would welcome me into his presence and he would not be judgmental or hard or withholding of affection. Even when he's bringing correction to me, he's not withholding any affection that he's the kindest person I've ever met, this awareness creates worship and it creates mercy and mission. And when I get out of this state of grace and I get into a place of earning, it crushes worship. Oh, I still go to church. I still sing the songs. I might raise my hands. But the heart is not thrilled 
with the beauty of God, now the heart is thrilled with the beauty of my worship to God. Now the heart is thrilled with the beauty of my disciplined devotional life. Now the heart is thrilled with I'm reaching out to my neighbor. Now my heart is thrilled with I'm meeting for Bible study with women. Now my heart is thrilled with look how kind I was to my brother when he sinned against me. Now my heart, when I switch to earning, I switch from being mindful of the beauty of God to being mindful of my worth, mindful of my service to God, and mindful of anyone else's deficiencies. I become even mindful of my own deficiencies. And if I'm doing poorly, I'm feeling condemned and ashamed. This love that seeks us and dies for us while we're at our worst is not just a one-time thing. It's the ongoing permanent state in which we find ourselves. It's called a state of grace. And uh, doesn't, that, doesn't that expression just, just feel? Like, doesn't just, you are in a state of grace. You have nothing to earn and everything to receive. Just knowing I live there. It's so important that we get this. Paul says, it's not likely that someone's going to die for a righteous person. And he doesn't mean like an apex, because then he upgrades and says, but for a good person, someone might possibly die. But Jesus dies for his enemies. He dies for the crowds who shout, give us Barabbas. He dies for those who spit on him and say, come down and prove it if you are the son of God. He dies for the, for the soldier who stabs him in the side to see if he's dead. He dies for Pilate who washes his hands and says, hey, look, it's not my fault. And he dies for you and me. in our deliberate, willful ignorance. <clears throat> and then you know, I've, I've talked about this so much in here that if while we were enemies is death made us friends, then how much more now that we are friends will his resurrection life bring us life? That's the, that's, like, that's Paul saying, Jesus in his death kills our death. Boom. He kills our old dead rebellious heart. Boom, boom. With his death. And then in his resurrection, he implants a brand new heart and we come flying out of our grave. That's, that's the logic of Paul in death and resurrection. If the death made us friends, how much more will the resurrection bring us life? You got to love that gospel logic. It's the sweetest exchange. Why don't we flip over now to um, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, if you could. Second Corinthians chapter 5. So we were in Romans 5, now we're going to 2 Corinthians 5. Is it raining? Is that what I'm hearing? Isn't that nice? You guys love storms like I love storms? 
I mean, obviously, if it's going to do this kind of raining where it's like every other day for a month, that's a little much. But there's something so cool about a, about a big lightning storm. It's beautiful. That just makes me want to set up a tripod and do long exposure photography of the clouds and the lightning and the rain. And there's something so calming and comforting about thunder rumbling and rain on the roof. And then afterward, the air is so clean and everything is so fresh. And you can run through puddles and get all muddy, rescue earthworms from their drowning fate so that robins have an easier time eating them off of the grass. Back to the text. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. I'm going to start at verse 11. Because we understand our fearful responsibility to the Lord, we work hard to persuade others. God knows we're sincere. And I hope you know this too. Are we commending ourselves to you again? No, no, no. We're giving you a reason to be proud of us so you can answer those who brag about having a spectacular ministry rather than having a sincere heart. You guys know that some of the best saints have the tiniest little insignificant ministries that are unknown? Like some of the most world-class people who have ever lived, the world doesn't know their name and the church doesn't know their name. But in eternity, we're going to find out. I have a friend who has a very small church and the other day I was with him and there was like five people at, our, at the prayer meeting. At, you know, him and me were included in the five. <laughs> And when he got into the pulpit, he preached like there was a thousand. And it blew me away. I was like, what? First, I was like, this guy's weird. Like, what's he doing? It's just us, bro. Like, you, could, you, don't, even, you don't need to stand on the stage. We could literally sit in a very small circle and you could just talk to us. Why you got to use your preacher voice? But as I reflected on it, I realized that he had made a commitment to regard holy things as holy. That he was doing this thing unto Jesus so that if, I, I, I wonder, I wonder if like no one showed up, he would have a service and preach to angels. I don't know. Blows my mind. Some of God's best saints. Only heaven knows their name. Anyway, if it seems we're crazy... It's to bring glory to God, and if we're in our right minds, it's for your benefit. Either way, Christ's love compels or controls us. Since we believe that Christ died for all, we also believe that all have died to our old life. Jesus died for everyone so that those who receive his new life will no longer live for themselves. Instead, they will live for Christ, who died and was raised for them. So... We have stopped evaluating others from a human point of view. At one time, we thought of Christ from merely a human point of view, how differently we know him now. This means that anyone who belongs to Christ has become a new person. The old life is gone, the new life has begun, and all of this is from God who brought us back to himself through Christ, and God has given us this task of reconciling people to him. For God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, no longer counting people's sins against them. 
And he gave us this wonderful message of reconciliation so that we are Christ's ambassadors. God is making his appeal through us. He doesn't say it's kind of like God's making his appeal through us. So far, do you capture, does the logic capture you? He says, we used, to, we used to just see people from a human point of view. But now that we understand Jesus, we see people from the lens of Jesus' death and resurrection. In Christ, God was saying, I'm not going to count your sins against you, but I'm going to take them off of you and I'm going to pursue you and love you. And Paul says, this is how I see people. I'm not counting your sins against you because I'm seeing you through the gospel. I'm not counting your sins against you or yours or yours or yours or yours because I'm seeing you through the gospel that God, the Father, was in Christ not counting men's sins against them but pulling sins off of people to bring them home. So that's how I see people, says Paul. And he doesn't say it's kind of like God himself is calling people home through the church. He says it is. God is calling people home. It's not kind of like God speaks through you when you invite people to God's love. God is speaking through you when you invite people to God's love. God is texting through you and Facebook messaging through you and phone calling through you and sitting across the table having coffee. God is standing outside your home as you wait for the bus talking to your next door neighbor. God is standing with you in line at the supermarket as you do the kind thing because the Holy Spirit prompted you to. God is paying for the meal of the person behind you in the drive-thru. It's not as though God were. He is. And he gave us this wonderful message of reconciliation so we are Christ's ambassadors. God is making his appeal through us. We speak for Christ when we plead, come back to God. For God made Christ, who never sinned, to be the offering for our sins so that we might be made right with God through Christ. That's a weak translation. Let me give you a stronger one. God made him. Oh, Holy Spirit is all over me right now. God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. It doesn't say God, it doesn't say God made him a sinner. It says God made him sin. And it doesn't say God made us righteous. It said God made us God's righteousness. This is the exchange. This is the only gospel we have. This is what Luther called the sweetest exchange. The way I like to talk about it to people who, when I'm trying to figure out how to explain it, I say, well, he took all your F's and you got all his A's. (laughs) That's too weak. Because it's so much more than that. It's not just you escaping punishment. It's you receiving fullness of divine blessing and love. It's not just you escaping a punishment you deserved. It's you receiving rewards Christ deserves. It's you receiving a place in God Christ furnished fully for us. It's the prayers answered. It's it's the affection shared. It's the destiny promoted. God's now relating to you as seeing you connected to Jesus so He's, the way that God the Father relates to Jesus 
is your relationship to God the Father. It's the sweetest exchange. All my hard-heartedness gets put on him and I get all his tender receptivity to the spirit. All my ignorant brain and mind sense and unrenewed perspectives get placed in Jesus on the cross and all of his Holy Spirit wisdom and insight into how to live in a way that pleases God and advances the gospel and flourishes and thrives and the purpose God has for me is placed here. You parse this out, it's right there. We've been given the mind of Christ All the heart that wakes up in the morning that says, I wanna do what I wanna do, gets taken from me and placed in Jesus, and all the heart that wakes up in the morning and says, I long for God today, gets put in in, in my chest. And yet, as I said earlier, I'm still imperfect. So this love that sought me while I'm at my worst is still relating to me at his best even though I'm still not where I want to be. I'm saved at my worst and placed in a state of grace, and now, even though I'm a saint, even on my worst day as a saint, he's for me. Even in my lowest low as a saint, he's still for me. Why else would it be possible to grieve the Holy Spirit? David used to pray, don't take the Holy Spirit from me. Now Paul's saying, don't grieve the Spirit. He's not leaving. He bore our sins instead of us. The sin was taken away and divine favor was placed here. He didn't do this while we were righteous and he's not changing his mind about us now. Think about Peter. Think about the way that Jesus in the last day warns Peter, you're about to deny me three times. Satan has asked to sift you like wheat. He's sure there's nothing real in you. He thinks all there is in you is self-interest, that you don't actually love me, you just love yourself and what you can get from me. And that when you go through the test, you'll fail and you'll be exposed and you'll be done. But I've prayed for you. And after you are restored, strengthen your brothers. Jesus already knows he's gonna deny him three times. And he washes his feet and he gives him communion and he goes to the cross. And then post-resurrection, he pastors him. He shows up and he restores him. He addresses the wound. He actually opens the wound, sets things right, and closes it back up and heals it. If you knew that Peter would deny you, would you wash his feet? (laughs) I mean, we kind of don't even want to sit at the table of the person who looks at us a certain way. Would you serve him the Last Supper? Would you tenderly prepare him to survive his own betrayal of you? Would you explain it all in advance? And then would you tenderly restore him? See, Jesus is not counting Peter's sins against him. Not in the beginning, not in the middle, 
and not after the fact. At no point is he counting his sins against him. Why? Because he doesn't view Peter from an earthly reference point. See, the cross is not God's reason for loving us. It's the fullest expression of how he loves us. It's how he sees. It's how he's always seen. Think about Hosea and prophet Hosea. Y'all know this story? God tells his prophet, I want you to marry that girl over there, Gomer. She's beautiful, but she's trouble. She's going to go run out on you. She's going to sleep with a lot of other people. And I want you to marry her. I know, no, thank you, Lord. What is wrong with you, God? How about no? But let me pray about it. Nope. Go think about it in a corner, Lord. It feels irreverent what I'm saying, but can you imagine that's real? That happened, guys. I want you to marry this woman who will have sex with all these other guys, and your job is to love her. How about I just kill everyone and her? That all sounds very reasonable to me. You're not supposed to say it across the pulpit. Sounds reasonable to me. I've been very sympathetic to those, uh, those laws in southern states where you, in a fit of rage, kill your lover, kill, kill your spouse and their illicit, foreign, adulterous lover. You know, crime of passion. I'm like, I think the judge should just say, so what happened then? Uh-huh. Oh, well, they deserve that. Check, check the two boxes. Feel free to go pay me $25 just for the court time and have a good life. Thanks for dealing with that so we don't have to. I know, that's not very Christian. Well, listen, I don't follow Jesus because he agrees with me. I follow Jesus because I need to. I like to joke that uh, Brian Hibbs, being a mil- having a military background, he has the temperament to be able to do that and still love Jesus. But I need to be a Mennonite because of my temperament. I need it. Hosea. Why would God do that to him? Today, I'm actually doing something highly unusual. This is a literal question, not a rhetorical one. Why did God have Hosea do that? He had Hosea do, right in front of their eyes, visibly, exactly what God had been doing with his people for generations. God had covenanted with these people. He had married his people and they had gone after other gods. And he didn't then just kill them all, which logic would dictate you do if you can. Oh, look, I'm God. I got these thunderbolts and whatnot. Uh, Done. Moving on. He doesn't do it. He doesn't do it. So he has his prophet reveal exactly what God is like. And that's exactly what Jesus reveals in his cross. And it's really hard for us to capture because we still categorize people, like, like big time. We're, we're like, Nazis go to hell, saints go to heaven.
Okay, but who did Jesus die for? Did he die for slaves and not slave owners? Did he die for murdered Jews in the Holocaust but not the murderers? This gospel will ruffle our feathers because the extent to which, the distance to which God's love goes is way beyond what I think it should. But we can't have it two ways, can we? I can't be the kind of evil sinner that he should love, but not you. It's not, it's, it, this good news is not always going to feel like good news. So there's some folk he longs to redeem. You just wish he wouldn't. Think about Jonah. Jonah, God says, go to Nineveh and preach. And Jonah says, I ain't doing it because they might repent and then you might forgive them. And I don't want, I want them to die. How about instead of I go and preach, call them to repentance, I just leave them alone and then they die and burn like they need to. Because their, their country went to war against my country and they killed my friends. You don't understand what that's like, God. So I want him to die. How about that? Can you see then why Jesus, when he comes along and he says, tells a story of a man who gets beat down by the side of the road and he has the good people in the story walk past to keep, their, keep clean, but then he has a Samaritan be the good guy? Because the Samaritan's the one that they don't want God to save. Samaritans are horrible. Is, someone, is, is there like an unanesthetized surgery happening downstairs? <laughs> I am making my first incision. See, God's love reaches so much further than my love or your love. It's way past what you and I think is right or appropriate. It's, it goes so far that as your enemies might be frustrated to find it reaches you. if you can learn to receive it. What happens if Judas repents? Now, we just talked about Peter, right? How, how gracious Jesus was to Peter. But what happens if Judah, Judas repents? No, I'm serious. Man. What happens? I'll tell you what I think might happen. I think Judas might have a really hard time getting over it. And I'll bet you the church might have a really hard time getting over it. But there's one person in the story I'm thinking is not going to have the hardest time getting over, and it's Jesus. How are we doing today? This kind of love is what breaks down our defenses. We've kind of known that it's God's kindness that leads us to repentance. It's not the law that brings us to repentance. It's not even the godly example of others that leads us to repentance, unless that example is extravagant love. But it's this, this kind of undeserved, radical, like in the face of your punches to get it away from you. It's, it's this, 
you're trying. You, you, I don't even believe in myself anymore. I, I just want to hurt you to get you away from me so that I can self-destruct. And he keeps on coming back. My friends had a kid that was super strong-willed. I'm not going to say who it is because <laughs> she grew up and it's a whole story. Yeah, it's a long story. Sometimes she was so angry and so rebellious and so hard that she would just kick and scream and scratch and claw. And the only thing her mom knew to do was hold her on her lap and just try to contain her while she screamed and freaked out to keep her from hurting herself and others. And sometimes I feel like that's how God loves us. That instead of saying, well, then your blood be on your own head, he says, I'm going to come in and I'm going to hold on to you and nothing you can do is going to make me let go. David says, though my mother and father reject me, the Lord will take me in. I heard Dan Moeller say, with tears, in the middle of a sermon on God's love, he broke and he said, God's love will break men down and bring them to their knees when nothing else will. When nothing else will. Threats of punishment, it's not going to work. It is so essential, it is so fundamental that Paul talks about this being the soil, the, the soil system and the water that, that, that becomes the sap that flows through our life, rooted and grounded in love. This is it. This radical, pursuing Love for the unlovely, this radical, undeserved, unearned, undeservable, unearnable affection that he sets on us while we're at our worst. This is so foundational that if we lose it, we become disconnected from the only flow of life. It's so essential. And this is how we never lose the wonder. It's so essential that we never lose the wonder of this love, this personal love that knows our name and calls us and keeps calling us and keeps seeking us and keeps finding us and keeps hunting us down over and over and over. Because if we can hold on to this and keep our eyes clear here, we'll worship well and we'll love well. If we don't, our worship will turn demonic. Do you know what I mean by that? Yes. Isn't it interesting that tradition says that Satan was the worship leader of heaven? And that his heart got lifted up. So now, instead of making the worship of God glorious, he started to look and see, yeah, baby, my worship is pretty glorious. So it switched from being awed by God to being awed by his worship of God. And that's how he fell. I find that fascinating. Being grounded in this kind of unrelenting divine pursuit that God is in of us, 
Love for the unlovely, this is what keeps us from missing the main thing of the gospel. It's what keeps us grounded. And it's what enables us to see people around us clearly. It's why Paul doesn't say, I, I, see, I try to seek other people and connect them to God because, you know, I'm supposed to. I really can't stand these people. Oh, man, I heard this hilarious. One of my seminary professors was like, yeah, uh, I couldn't hack it in ministry because I can't stand the smell of sheep. Then what are you doing here? <laughs> and he's like, ah, I didn't realize they had fangs and they bite. And I'm like, well, come on now. Isn't that hilarious? I can't stand the smell of sheep. Well, then, are you saved? Anyway, um, yeah, yeah, one of my favorite pastors is a real jerk, and I just love him so much, because he's a jerk for the right reasons. And he was having a conversation with another pastor, and he said, how's it going? How are you guys reaching out to your community? And he says, yeah, we tried to reach out to our community, but like, they don't own Bibles, they have messed up family systems, just like the, the time and the energy, they just don't... Man, they're not living right. They're, they waste, they're a waste of time and they're a waste of energy. They're a waste of money. Like, I just decided I was going to make a church for the faithful. We would teach the faithful. And the, my pastor that I really like, he couldn't help himself. He didn't even think. He just it blurted out, you're going to hell. <laughs> Maybe. Because the, the past, this pastor I like so much, he, he didn't mean the guy was going to hell. He just couldn't connect. The people for whom Christ died aren't worth your time because they're an inconvenience because they need to be discipled and trained and they have dirty diapers because they're babies and what is wrong with you? To keep the wonder, we have to stay disconnected from earning and connected to a state of grace because we're in a state of grace. Martin Luther, the reformer, he would spend hours in confession, like, you know what I mean? They, they had, he's an Augustinian monk, so they would go to confession. He would find, you know, they'd have these specified times they were supposed to go to confession. So he'd spend hours in there confessing all these dumb little things, like, I envied so-and-so's voice during the singing time, or I perhaps didn't wash that dish with all my heart unto the Lord, or, you know what I mean? And the guy got so sick and tired of poor whiny. Just negative, introspective, navel-gazing, pulling the lint out. and I don't know. I'm a bad saint. It's so bad to be me. Wah. My life is bad. Poor me. Wah. And finally, the guy who was listening to him confess sins was like, oh, Luther, would you kill somebody or something? Do, commit a real sin. This is so boring. You know? Do something worth listening to. This is yawn-tastic. You're forgiven, get out of here. Enough. But the truth was, Luther said, the first command is to love God. And then all these other commands that I'm supposed to follow too. And I'm trying to follow all these commands and I can't and I'm failing. And the harder I'm working, the more mindful I am of how far I'm yet to go. And it's just so maddening that I can never measure up. And I'm looking over at Jesus and he's like, you're not measuring up because he's in an earning mindset. And he's like, and he died for me. How do you be worthy of that? That makes me feel even more guilty. I killed him in addition to all the other stuff I did. I also killed Jesus. Now I got to figure out how to live that down. Do I love God? No, I hate God. I've devoted my life to trying to love him, and the harder I try, the more resentful I am of him. And also you guys, too, you stink. Quit doing it better than me and being happy. 
And then one day, he was in Romans. And he came across this phrase that in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that's not by works, a righteousness from God that's by faith from first to last. And all of a sudden, he understood for the first time in his whole life that this righteousness was not a righteousness he made for God, but it was just a gift. And he said it was like there was a door sitting before him and it opened up and on the other side was heaven and he just walked through. And guess what happened then? Oh, you're beautiful. (gasps) Do you love God, Martin? Absolutely, with all my heart. And do you love your neighbor? Yeah, he's a total idiot. Look how beautiful he is. Complete moron. I love him. He's as screwed up as I am. There's enough grace for everyone plus another million worlds. And what disposed him? In one instant, he switched over from resenting God and his brother to loving God and his brother. He got out of earning. He went into a state of grace. I think that's probably about enough for today. Earning makes us blind. Remember the story in Luke 18 of the church guy and the alcoholic? I'm updating my language here. Okay, let's update it even further. No, it's not, it's not. Sometimes when I update things too much, then the gospel becomes offensive again like it was when it first came, and then I get in trouble. Something to think about. Earning makes us blind. Oh, I thank you that I'm not like other men. I fast twice a week and I give a tenth of all I get. You don't see me showing up late for church. Carrie. I'm on time. I do what I'm supposed to do. Thank you, God, that I'm not like other men. Praise God for me. Chuck, I'm very tired because I was up all night interceding for you to be more like Jesus and me. Chuck, kick that guy right in the throat. And Jesus says that guy doesn't even go home justified. But this guy that's on the ground going, help, I'm a wreck. I don't even know how I got this way. Like, like, what? Help. That guy goes home and God says, forgiven, clean, mine. Isn't that interesting? The righteous gets up, falls down seven, gets up eight times. It doesn't say the righteous doesn't fall. (laughs) It gets up eight times. Grace opens our eyes. Mary's at his feet, forgiven much, sees Jesus as he is, says, it's my Lord and Savior. Simon's at the table saying, I'm not even sure he's a prophet if he's going to let her touch him. Grace opens your eyes, earning blinds your eyes. Hand on your heart. Other hand out to receive. Eyes closed. Repeat after me. Jesus. You loved me at my worst. And you still love me at my worst. My place with you is fully furnished. I get in on all your A's. You took all my F's. All the love God has for me in eternity. 
It's mine right now. God, open my heart to receive it. God, open my eyes to see. Let me see your grace. Let me see your love. Let me see myself. And let me see others. In Jesus' name, guys, amen. Amen.